I invite you to turn in your Bible this morning to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. We've been making our way through the book of Romans. It's actually a letter uh, that the Apostle Paul wrote to believers living in the city of Rome, Jews and Gentiles, um, that are uh, experiencing difficulty in living in harmony together. And he is laying out for them um, several things, but mainly saying, listen, this is why you ought to live together as God's people. And this is why you ought to live together, not only for your good, but God's glory and for the furtherance of the message of the gospel. And as we've been tra- tracking along one chapter time, we now come to Romans chapter eight, which has been called um, various things that can be summarized like this, the greatest chapter in the Bible. Now, uh, that may seem like an odd thing to, to say if we believe, uh, as the scriptures themselves teach, that they all are in their entirety from beginning to end the very words of the living God, that they are all equally profitable for our life and salvation. Uh, meaning uh, there's no one part of this Bible that we, that we say, nah, that's not really a good part, that we don't really read that anymore, we don't do anything with it. All of God's Word is inspired by God. And yet, and yet, we, we have what is often called the, the, the five-minute test. Meaning, if you knew you were in the last five minutes of your life, what part of the Bible would you go to and read? What would you find the most joy and comfort and assurance in? It's probably not the first eight chapters of Chronicles which is just a long litany of genealogy. Now, there is benefit there. It shows God fulfilling His promises. We could draw out a whole series of sermons on that, but that would not be the place you would go in the last five minutes. A text like Romans chapter 8 is. It is a place where there is so much assurance and comfort of God's love towards His people that it just overflows with helpfulness to us in our walk with God. In fact, it was not... Uh, It was only a few years ago that we encouraged all of our members to memorize Romans chapter 8 as a means of strengthening our faith and, and aiding us in our fight against sin as we seek to live as God's people. Those of you that have been with us know that Paul has been, has been moving from chapter 1 to show what is wrong with humanity, why we deserve God's judgment, but what God has done to save humanity by sending Christ. We have seen that salvation is not from us, it is not in what we do, it is not in keeping God's law, but rather it is from God Himself, who sent a Savior who kept the law for us. And yet we've also seen now that we are saved, we are freed from the power and the penalty of sin, we nevertheless struggle with his, it, sin's presence in chapters uh, 6 and 7 especially. And how even though we are saved, we still live in a fallen world and therefore we struggle against sin. And sometimes we even feel as if we are losing that struggle. And yet Paul says that the one who delivers us out of that struggle, not just in the here and now but on the final day, is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he picks up what he has been saying with these sweet and precious words from verse one There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, 
But to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers and sisters, we are not debtors. We are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ provided we suffer with Him in order that we may be glorified with Him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we eagerly await for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope, we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience." Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the Word of God. Several themes permeate this chapter, including the presence of the Holy Spirit, 
comfort for God's people, assurance of their salvation. In fact, I thought about entitling this message Assurance instead of Adoption because it is such a clear theme that runs from beginning to end. There is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus, verse 1. Nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ, verse 39. And yet I chose adoption as the kind of title and and overall theme for this reason. The giving of the Spirit of God and the assurance that only comes to those who have the Spirit are those that are adopted as God's children. And so in that sense, it kind of runs from the center backwards and forwards throughout the chapter. So if we were to sum up what we're going to see today in Romans chapter 8, I would say it like this. Those who have faith in Christ experience assurance of that saving work by the giving of the Spirit and the evidence of His work in our lives. That's what we're going to see this morning from Romans chapter 8. And this is marked out uh, in the life of God's people, first of all, as we see the fulfillment of the law. The fulfillment of the law. This is what God is doing in the life of his people, namely the fulfillment of the law. Paul has spent a considerable amount of time in this letter talking about the law of God and how we cannot keep the law of Moses on our own. In fact, uh, it's not just a matter of willingness. There is a spiritual inability for us to live in ways fully pleasing to God. But now Paul shows the people of God can fulfill the law by the power of God. It's not so much that we are fulfilling it, but rather it is being fulfilled in us. And you'll know that so far, Paul has only mentioned the Spirit a handful of times. But now in chapter 8, he explodes on the scene. There's a tremendous emphasis on God's Spirit. There is, in fact, hardly a verse that goes by that doesn't mention Him or the work or the activity that He is doing in our lives. First, we see that Paul giving this tremendous assurance right on the heels of the end of chapter 7. And again, you remember that that chapter ends with his frustration over sin. But in verses 1 through 4, he is really following up from what he said back in chapter 7, verse 6. Now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not the old way of the written code. Paul is going to unpack that now. And here he says that in Christ, there is no condemnation. There is no condemnation. That will be the simplest blank you ever fill out in one of these outlines, I guarantee it if you're taking notes, the word no, N-O, there it is. How is the law fulfilled in us, first of all? There is the declaration that there is no condemnation. It is one of the greatest, most comforting verses in all the Bible, Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That should amaze you because we deserve condemnation. We deserve God's wrath for our sinfulness, sinfulness that exists on every level of who we are, our intentions, our thoughts, our deeds, our desires. We deserve condemnation, but we are spared that righteous wrath because of the work of Christ. Notice his explanation of this reality in the remaining verses, two through four. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus for, because... The law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. Remember, we said there's nothing wrong with the law. The problem is us. We can't keep it. That's why the law is weakened by our flesh, by our sinfulness. 
How has God done what the law could not do? By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Why? In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirits. What is Paul saying? Paul is saying that even though Christ himself was not sinful, he came and took on himself the appearance, the likeness of sinful flesh. In other words, he was truly human and looked like the rest of us like a sinner, but he was not a sinner. He was only in the likeness of sinful flesh, fully, really human, but not sinful, and therefore the perfect sacrifice who could bear our sins on the cross. In his death, condemnation that we deserved passed to Christ. And notice the goal of this justifying work. God did this in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now, if you're familiar with the Bible and you've been with us for Romans, you might have expected Paul to say that God condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled for us. Because we've already talked about that in chapters 4 and 5, how Christ not only died, but first lived a perfect life to fulfill all the righteous requirements of God that they might be counted, imputed to us who believe so that our sins are not only condemned on the cross, but the righteousness with which we need to see God is, is given to us by Jesus' life. There is, a, there is a double imputation that takes place that we have everything that we need before God. That's not what Paul says here. He says the law is being fulfilled in us. In other words, Christ died not only to save us from sins, but to save us for godliness, to save us for righteousness. Paul says that we could not keep the law because of our sinfulness. We cannot achieve holiness on our own. We are dependent on God and the work that he is doing in us. And that can happen because of the new way of living that we experience. This is the second thing that we see here. Not only is there no condemnation, but now there is new living for God's people. New living. We see that in verses 5 through 11. Notice specifically the contrast between those who are saved and those who are not. Those who are living according to the flesh and those who are living according to the Spirit. Do not misunderstand Paul here to say those that are living according to the flesh are somehow saved but not mature. There is this myth of the carnal Christian, someone who has trusted Christ but now has lived no differently their entire lives. And even though they will lack rewards and the joys of, of knowing God in this life, they'll still be saved because they trusted in Christ at the beginning. That is antithetical to the Bible as we will see clearly in this passage. Paul is describing those who live according to their sinful nature, the flesh, unbelievers, and those who live according to the Spirit, believers, the people of God. Notice the people of the flesh, people that live out their sinful nature. They set their minds on the flesh and the result is death. Why? Because that way of thinking, Paul says, is hostile to God. Such people cannot submit to God's law. They cannot please God. God. That is the life of someone who doesn't know God. Someone who is separated from him at the deepest possible level, not even thinking about pleasing him. Spiritually unable to even desire to please him. They are hostile towards God. In contrast are God's own people who have been given God's spirit. 
Paul says, those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. And what is the result for them? Life and peace. Why are Christians' minds set on the things of the Spirit? Because the Spirit of God dwells in them. Christ, therefore, is in them, and we belong to Him. And therefore, we are thinking and living differently because we know the future that awaits us. Verse 11 says, If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. He says that the, 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 the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. In other words, listen, we're... We still came into this world under Adam. And even though we are saved out from under the condemnation that we deserve as, as sinners guilty before God, a part of this all creation, we're going to die one day. Our sinful body is going to be put in the ground. But just like Jesus' body was put into the ground and raised back to life, the promise is also for those who have been brought into the family of God by the Spirit of God through faith in Christ that one day our bodies will be raised again as well. That's our future. Not to be a disembodied spirit or not to simply lay in the ground for all of eternity, but to be given new life and to live with God forever. Remember the description of the one who lives according to the flesh here is the default setting for every person in the world. This is what we were like before we came to Christ. This is what they are still like who live apart from Christ. Hostility towards God, carrying nothing about their ways, or at least paying it lip service only. That's the norm. And so just by way of application, we think about today, we look out across the landscape and we can lament society's ever-deepening slide into sin, open sin, but it should never surprise us. That was drilled home just here recently over the weekend at the, the news of the death of Justice Antonin Scalia. You know, there used to be a kind of, listen, I, I disagreed with him. I, I, I didn't like his judgments. I'm on the opposite side of him. But, um, you know, here's a man who has served his country. He's died. We're going to give him some respect. That is just not the case anymore. I mean, immediately on social media, uh, the most vulgar tweets about this man has gone out, regardless of any thought or care about uh, his family who is grieving and mourning. Uh, at least on the surface, that is a slide for our country from where we used to be. At least paying public respect to people in public service. It's bad, but it's not surprising. Because on the whole, those people live contrary to God and his ways. Not just because they didn't like Scalia. Don't miss the point. The point is common decency of the death of another human being made in the image of God. They don't get it because they don't care about God's ways. They are hostile towards God. So sin is not surprising to us, but it should not be the norm for God's people. Rather than a slide into sin, it should be a climb out of sin. And so what we see is that this new living that we have, the result is a necessary obedience. The result is a necessary obedience. We see that in verses 12 through 17. God's Spirit not only makes possible our obedience to God, but actually transforms us to be obedient to the will of God. Paul says that Christians no longer live according to the flesh, that is their sinful hearts. They live according to the Spirit. Therefore, verse 12, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. 
For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Paul says we have no obligation to sin anymore. Previously, as he explains in in Ephesians chapter 2, we were enslaved to sin. Given the opportunity, we're going to sin. But now we don't have that obligation. We're not in debt to sin in the same way. We don't have to do it. Just the opposite. The mark, the necessary sign that we are the children of God is that we do not love sin. We do not play with sin. We do not take sin lightly over the course of our lives. Does that mean that we're perfect? Absolutely not. And if you struggle to know how that works, read the letter of 1 John this morning. But Paul's point is to say the trajectory of our life is advancing in godliness. That's the mark that we have, the Spirit of God, and are therefore one of the sons of God. That's how he puts these things together in verse 14. All who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Now think about why does he make that connection? Well, I think he makes that connection for lots of reasons, but I think namely is this principle, children look like their father. Whether physically or experientially. I mean, sometimes it's just genetics, right? Anytime I post a picture on Facebook of my kids, at least one person somewhere, somehow will say, boy, they just look just like you and Melinda. Or, or, or we go down to Ohio and we see people we haven't seen but knew us when we were growing up kids, and, and they knew us when we were four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, and ten. And they look at our kids and say, man, they look just like you. That's what you looked like when I was teaching your Sunday school class at that age. But, so maybe it's just the genetics. We, we look like them, but maybe it's more than that. Um, young people, you will have this very scary experience. You will be grown up, you'll be married, you'll have kids, and you, something will come out of your mouth towards your kids and you'll say, that was my dad. That's exactly what he would say to me. I'm becoming my dad. Or, 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 that's, or, that's, or if you're a lady, that's what my mom would say. Or that's what my mom would do. And suddenly you realize, oh no, you know, it's like destiny is happening, fate is sealed. You, know, uh, you, know, you, you, know, you look like your parents, right? And that's not surprising. I mean, you grew up with them. Uh, you, you, know, you, you, you saw what they did. It, just by example, they, they were teaching you how to live and navigate life. And sometimes that was a terrible example. And the evidence it, it, is, is, in the, is in the contrast. That you just think, I am not going to do anything like them. And shoot, there it is. They still had that kind of influence on you. But by and large, there is something of your parents in you. And it's no different with God's children. Though he adopts us, he gives us his spirit. In other words, by that spirit, God himself takes up residence in our life. His very essence begins to radiate on our souls so that if we are his children, we cannot help but be changed into his likeness. Just as he is holy, so his sons will be changed into a holy people. And if that's not happening, again, I'm not saying that every single day you end the day and say, well, I lived a perfect life. I mean, we talked about that last Sunday, right? That's not the normative experience. It's not what we should expect. We should expect because we still live in a sinful world to struggle against sin. But But if you look back 10 years ago, five years ago, is there growth in holiness? Is there change in your character? If there's not, then you should not hold on to some vain hope that you are a child of God. You might be but you have no assurance of that. God's children look like their father. That's what Paul says here, verses 15 through 16. 
You have not received the spirit of slavery to fall back in the fear. You have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And the Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Believers don't fear God like slaves. They love God like children. And when we do that, when we are growing into His likeness, then God's Spirit brings assurance to our spirits that indeed we are His children. And what does that do? It gives us an assurance of hope. This is the second thing that we see what it means to be God's children. In verses 18 to 30, we see that we are given assurance of hope. How does the Spirit bring assurance to God's people in whom He dwells? First, He reminds us of God's glorious promise. He reminds us of God's glorious promise. In verse 20, notice Paul says that the creation was subjected to futility. In the, in the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, that's the same word Ecclesiastes uses to describe this world. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. The point here for Paul is that we live in a fallen world. We live in a world that is stained by sin. We live in a world of frustration frustration and disappointment and suffering, but something better is coming. This isn't all there is for us. Verse 19 says, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Paul says, look, from the very beginning, when Adam and Eve sinned, this world was cursed. And from the very beginning, up until the day he is writing, and we can even say up until now, today that we are reading this, Creation itself has been groaning, has been, has been lurching, has been longing, eagerly anticipating the day when it will be free from that curse. Paul likens it to labor pains. I don't know by experience, but I know by observation with my wife in a labor and delivery room four times that there is a good deal of distress when it comes to giving birth to a child. There are labor pains but I don't know any mother, especially not the one of my children, that would say it wasn't worth it in the end. You know, it's not easy. Sometimes um, I remember hearing about one of my predecessors at seminary who was in the labor and delivery room with his wife, and she is uh, uh, agonizing, yelling, and he says, remembering the reality of Genesis 3, it's okay, honey, this is just your pain to bear because of the curse. <laughs> Being several years ago, a metal bedpan was found at the side in which she grabbed and conked him out and he missed the birth of his children. Uh, true, but not appropriate to be said. There is pain, but new life emerges from that pain. And Paul says, it's the same with creation. I mean, just, just the, the, the physicality of, you know, you, you should not be fearful of going out into a boat and encountering a hurricane that just destroys not only you on the water, but your home back on shore. That's not natural. That's not, that's not something that we would think of when God looks at creation and says it is very good. It is part of the curse that has come out of it. You should not think about the cells that God has made very good rebelling against your own body, spontaneously growing. It's something we call cancer. 
and having to nuke your body with, with radiation and chemotherapy to try and destroy it. That's not natural. Every part of creation is groaning in pain because of sin. But it's groaning because God is going to give birth to something new and better and glorious. There is a new creation that is coming into the world of the return of Christ, and it is not stained by sin. And so beautiful, so glorious is a new creation that for Paul, all of the pain and toil and struggle of this present age of sin and suffering is manageable. He says, I consider the sufferings of this present time that they are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. In other words, what is coming is so much greater. I can handle this now. I can get through this now. I have hope of the future and therefore I can persevere in the midst of this suffering. Even in a sin-cursed world, we have the hope of future glory. We have something better that God has promised. Not only the creation, we ourselves have the first fruits of the Spirit and grown inwardly as we eagerly await the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. God gives to his people the Holy Spirit as a down payment, as a guarantee that the new creation will actually come one day. Do you have the Spirit of God? Then you have a promise. You have the down payment, the guarantee, the promise that something better is coming. Not just for creation, but for you personally. For when God remakes all things into this perfect world without sin, guess what? What did we see earlier? You will be raised back from the dead in a body uncorrupted by sin, fit to live in that new creation with God forever. That is the hope we have for the future. Meanwhile, though, we continue to slog in this sinful world, often frustrated by what we see and experience. And because of the Spirit, we see that He encourages prayer in us. We see that He encourages prayer as part of the means by giving us the assurance of hope. Among other things, Paul Miller has an extensive ministry leading weekend seminars and retreats on prayer. And back in 2011, when um, I was at the Desiring God Pastors Conference in Minneapolis, he was talking about these surveys they do before people go through their seminars. Right at the beginning, they do this survey, uh, what is your prayer life like now? And all these other questions. And he said, just based on those surveys... He believes about 90% of evangelical Christians are dissatisfied. They do not have a meaningful daily prayer life. That's sad and scary. Because prayer is meant to be the means by which we daily fellowship with God our Savior. And for 90% of God's people to say, I don't have a daily prayer life, I don't have a good, solid, enjoyable daily prayer life, means there is a disconnect between what they say they have believed about Christ and daily how they live out that faith. Perhaps they are tempted to lose hope and therefore stop praying because of the difficulties of this life. Or perhaps they're just so overwhelmed by the difficulties, they don't know even where to begin to pray, what to ask for as they call out to God. Notice that Paul says that God's Spirit is given to us to encourage and even help our prayers. He says the Spirit helps us in our weakness. This weakness is not just a one-time thing. I think it's all the time. We really don't know what to pray for sometimes. In fact, because of the sinfulness of our hearts, sometimes we pray for things that we ought not to pray for because we're praying for hearts of selfishness. 
But sometimes we just feel the weight of sin in such ways. We just throw up our hands and weep and say, I don't, I don't even know how where to begin with this. Many, many years ago, New Testament scholar D.A. Carson was preaching a message and he shared about uh, his friend who lived in Illinois at the time. Uh, this man was married and had seven children. All seven children were hemophiliacs, meaning their blood doesn't clot right and, and they're constantly needing uh, transfusions. Six of those seven children had contracted HIV because of blood transfusions and no fault of their own. Now, when you think about that situation, a, a man and a wife, seven kids that have this blood disorder and six of which have caught this terminal disease, at least at that point, how, how do you even start to pray for them? I mean, you begin to meditate on it, especially if you know them, if they are your good friends, if you've served alongside that man in ministry, you just start to think about the depth of that situation. You just want to close your eyes and nothing comes out of your mouth. Tears just stream from your face. Paul says, what happens in those times? For the Christian, for the one who longs for God's will and his glory to be shown in the lives of his people, the spirit begins to go to work. We do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And He who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So the Spirit hears and understands the groans of our hearts and He begins to pray on our behalf. More than that, he prays a prayer perfectly in line with the perfect will of our Heavenly Father so that every groan, every sigh, every moan, every ununttered and unutterable expression, every word that gets stuck in the throat and cannot come out, the Spirit understands and forms into an acceptable prayer and offers it to our Heavenly Father on our behalf. And for the times when we're not praying as we should, when we don't know what to pray in our weakness and perhaps we've been praying for the wrong things, the Spirit Himself corrects those things. And sends them up rightly that God may hear and respond. And so we are meant to be encouraged. Remember, we have a heavenly father. What do children do but call out to their father? That's why the spirit of adoption moves in our hearts towards what? To, to cry out in prayer. Abba, Father. God is not distant from us. He's not far from us. He desires us to come before Him in prayer and the Spirit encourages us to do that, assuring us that we are God's children that He will hear. Finally, the Spirit brings assurance by reminding us of God's saving purpose. God's saving purpose. Even when things don't seem to go right, we are given hope because of the assurance that God is at work fulfilling His plans and purpose. What purpose is that? The purpose spoken of in Romans 8, 28, a very oft-quoted verse. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. I had a Sunday school teacher and she said that every single Sunday by way of application in our class. Here's the question. Some of you love that verse, you, you, you believe that verse, you pray that verse, but what are you praying for? What is the purpose that Paul is talking about at the end of verse 28? What, what, what is the, the, the purpose for which all God is working all things together for good? Well, just read the next verse. Paul tells us in the next verse. Here is that purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, 
in order that he might be the firstborn among any brothers. This is the purpose for which God is working all things together for good, namely that you look like Jesus. That, that Remember how we said that a son looks like his father? It is, it is no more true when it comes to Jesus who perfectly reflects the glory of God and we are being changed into that image so that Christ will not be a, an only son but the firstborn son, the unique, the preeminent son among many brothers and sisters. So when, so when we're praying, when, when we have confidence, God is working out a purpose. He's working all things together for our good. That doesn't mean health, wealth, and prosperity. That's not what he's talking about. Unless health, wealth, and prosperity are going to make us look more like Christ. And for most people, that's the opposite of what happens with health, wealth, and prosperity. It is in the crucible of life that we flee to God, we depend more on Him, we soak more in His Word looking for comfort and assurance, and He begins to slowly mold and refine us to look like Jesus. And how does God accomplish this person purpose? Notice. Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those who called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. God says, this is my intention, this is my purpose, to save you and to conform you to the image of Christ and to bring glory to myself for all eternity because of it. And notice, it began in eternity. I predestined you. Before you were born, I decided this is what I'm going to accomplish in you. And that resulted in me coming into this world and calling you. And calling you to myself, and in calling you to myself, I then justified you. I declared you righteous in Christ. And I declared you righteous in Christ knowing that one day I'm going to glorify you. I'm going to completely and fully purge sin from your life and make you shine like the stars in the sky. That's what God says from beginning to end. I am the one who does saving. And some people don't like that. Some people makes them nervous. Some people think that it needs to be on them. It needs to be what they do. Some people even say this is just... Uh, you know, some kind of theological paradigm, but it's right there in the text. I love there's a pastor in the, in the UK, in Scotland, I believe, named Ian Hamilton, and he said that, um, you know, once he got into, well into his schooling, uh, his college degree uh, as a Christian, he began to think about theology and he heard terms like Calvinism and whatever else. But he said when he was in high school, he went to one of his deacons and he said, listen, he says, I read the most marvelous thing in the Bible this week. I wanted to share it with you. And the deacon said, what did you find? And he said, I found out that before I loved God, he loved me. One of the grumpy elders says, that's Calvinism. His response was, I don't think so. It's Romans. It's in Romans 8. (laughs) In other words, don't don't be so quick to to attach a theological label. Don't be so quick to shut your mind up. Listen to, to what we're seeing here. This is God's gracious salvation for us. It's the same thing that we see over and over again. It is not by our working that we do, but it is fully a measure, an act, a loving display of God's grace from beginning to end, before time began, before until time never ends, that God is the one doing the saving, not us. And once he calls us onto that salvation train, there, there's, no, there's no stops. Nobody's getting off. So you don't get saved, you aren't justified, and then you say, I don't want to be justified anymore, I'm done, I get off. No, 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 Those he called, he justified. Those he justified, he glorified. It starts before creation, and it ends with the new creation on into eternity. This is how we can have assurance that we are God's people because it doesn't depend on us. It fully depends on God. Finally, finally, as those adopted as God's children by God's Spirit, we experience the comfort of love. The comfort of love, so fitting for uh, this Hallmark holiday, right? Not that I don't love my wife, but 
If I only tell her I love her and buy her flowers and candy and hearts on one day of the year, I'm doing pretty poor as a husband. Let's just be honest. If you can't say amen, say ouch. There are many ways dividing up these remaining verses, 31 through 39, but I want to give you two big ideas that you can uh, get your minds around. First of all, the comfort of God's love is seen in our future vindication. Our future vindication. What then shall we say to these things? Paul, Paul gets to the end of Romans, uh, gets to the, where he's been so far in Romans 8, and he says, so let's just stop. Well, what are we going to say about all this? Well, what is our response to these things? Here's his reply. If God is for us, who can be against us? Now notice Paul doesn't ask, who is against us? If God is for us, who is against us? Because we can think of many people who are against us. We can think of many people who do not like us, whether politically or whether spiritually, uh, whatever it is. But, but notice Paul's question is that assumes that ultimately they're not going to be successful in whatever their plans and designs are for for our lives and for ill will towards us. It's, yeah, there are people against us, but really, really, if God is for us, who can be against us? Who? Who's going to stop God? No one is the answer. And how do we know that? How do we know that God is for us, that no one can stand against us? Look what he says. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Think about the argument that Paul's making here. He is saying, look, God has already given us Christ. He has already given us his own son, the most beautiful, glorious gift imaginable. There's nothing greater that he could have given to us. And therefore, he's already given us the best. Why would he withhold anything else from us? Why would he say, hey, listen, I already gave you Christ. You don't need anything. I'm done. I'm done. Not going to give you anything else. I I get that way sometimes. You do something nice for your kids. You something really nice, and then, they, and then they come back with lip or with attitude, unthankfulness. I'm like, ah, I'm done. Forget it. No, we're not doing anything else. No, no more fun stuff this weekend. Go, go, find, go clean your room or something, right? That's because I'm a sinful human father who's fickle in his affection sometimes. But what does God say? God says, look, I've given you the very best I can, therefore everything else is yours. Everything else that you need for life and godliness, everything you need for growing in the image of Christ, everything you need for spiritual maturity, for assurance, for hope, all of it is now yours. I've given you Christ, everything else is small potatoes. Enjoy and profit from it. And so Paul can say elsewhere in 1 Corinthians, what no eye has seen, nor ear has heard, nor heart of man imagined, this is what God has prepared for those who love him. Most important of all is in in his gifts is this final vindication, the final verdict of God in the last day. When all of humanity stands before God and is called into account for their life, what is God going to say? What are we going to say before God? Paul says that we must remember that because God has given us Christ, Our salvation depends on him and not on us. And so when when, when someone wants to accuse us, someone wants to argue with us, even when God wants, or excuse me, rather when, when Satan wants to condemn us and say, listen, you're not living like a child of God. Who do you think you are? You're not saved. How do you respond to that? How do, you, how, do you, how do you respond to the one who is accusing you and condemning you for the real sin that exists in your life contrary to who you are in Christ? What does he say? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. God is the one issuing the verdict. 
He is the one who's already said, what? Verse 1, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus, the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who was at the right hand of God, who is interceding for us. So God is the one who gives us the Spirit, who reminds us of what He has done in Jesus so that when we come on some Sunday, we can sing with truthfulness, with full conviction, something like this. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt with him, I look to heaven and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free for God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. We know the love of God. We are assured of it because of the future vindication that he has already promised to us today. But more than that, we see it in our final victory. We see the comfort of God's love made true to us, made clear to us through our final victory. Paul's last question brings together all the other questions he has posed. Here he asks the essential question, who shall separate us from the love of God? Who shall separate us from the love of God? Consider the answers that he presents as answers that we ourselves, if we were sitting down with Paul, he says, who shall separate us from the love of God? And we say, let me think about it. Well, tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword, aren't all these things evidence that God doesn't love us? We might feel that way. Remember, we live in a world that's hostile to God. And if it's hostile to God, will it not be hostile to the kids as well? We feel the weight of Isaiah's words, which Paul quotes, for your sake, God, for your sake, we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. The world just says, ah, do away with them. We don't see that very often, except perhaps in some verbal put-downs, but around the world, that, that's, that's daily life for God's people. What is Paul's response? In all these things, in tribulation, distress, and persecution, and famine, and nakedness, and danger, and sword. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Notice, not just a conqueror, not just we have victory over those things, but we are more than conquerors. I was puzzled about that. What does that mean? Uh, you know, when I was in high school, we had this local guy named Brian Hitch who used to sing this song uh, at summer camps and things, and it was about being, uh, you are more than conquerors, da, 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 da. and it was great. And then we would sing the, the old hymn, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus, more than conquerors we are. And, and it just, I got to think, what does that mean? I know what it means to conquer something. What does it mean to be more than conquering? And I read something that made sense to me. And it says, if you conquer someone, if you defeat them, you've conquered them. But what if you take the thing that you've defeated, that person, and you force them to work for you? They become your servant then, as was typical in ancient battles and wars. Then you've become more than a conqueror. You've not just defeated the enemy, you've caused them to work for your good. And I think that maybe that's what God is saying here. Even in the worst of times, even when you're going through tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, and scorn, God is using that what for that good purpose that he's described. Turning us into the image of Christ that we might be glorious before his presence. Nothing is separating us from God's love, just the opposite. In love, God is taking the difficult things in life and using them for our good. Like a man climbing Mount Everest secured to a line that keeps him from falling to his death, though he loses his footing, though he slips on the ice. So Christ is the believer's secure line with God. 
He is the evidence of God's care and security, his love for us, his unending, unimaginable love for us. Who shall separate us from the love of God? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? No one. For in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Famous author and preacher John Bunyan wrote in his autobiography, Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners, how for several years as a believer, he wrestled with a guilty conscience and did not have assurance of his salvation. But then he says this, one day as I was passing in the field and that too with some dashes in my conscience, fearing lest yet all was not right, suddenly this sentence fell upon my soul. Thy righteousness is in heaven. And I saw with the eyes of my soul Jesus Christ at God's right hand. There I say was my righteousness so wherever I was or wherever I was, whatever I was doing, God could not say to me, he lacks my righteousness, for that was just before him. I saw also moreover that it was not my good frame of heart that made my righteousness better, nor yet my bad frame that made my righteousness worse. For my righteousness was Jesus Christ himself, the same yesterday, today, and forever. So it is for us when we wonder when we despair and we are tempted to doubt God's goodness or that we are saved, we look not to our own lives for assurance, but to Christ. And know if we love Christ and if we have received his saving love towards us, nothing can separate us from that. Though we have bad days and we blow it and we sin, Christ's righteousness, Christ's love remains constant and we can find forgiveness and renew fellowship with God through him. If God is a sovereign judge of all things, then as he has said, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Father, we are so thankful for this glorious truth. We are thankful for this, this reality that because of what you have done for us in Jesus, we are not only your children, but Father, we are your children saved from the condemnation we deserve as wayward sinners. We have your spirit put into our lives the down payment of the fullness of salvation that you will do on the final day. God, we have the spirit who is at work in our lives to conform us to the image of Christ, fulfilling the law in us, causing us to be not law breakers, but law keepers, people who love and desire to do your will. Father, you have done so much for us. Father, may we stand back in awe and give you thanks and praise. God, may we love and cherish and desire you all the more and all the more, God, see sin as an old and despicable thing that we desire to flee from at all costs. Father, this is our prayer this morning. We ask it for Christ's sake. Amen.